All right, let's follow along in uh, your Bible or your device, Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 25. As I was listening to that first service and now again second service, I have all the pronunciations wrong. So don't, don't be stumbled by that. The topic we're going to find here, King Ahaz is given a sign that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The title of the message, The King Ahaz, Virgin of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you, we bless you. We're, we're here, Lord, excited about your word. We want to learn about uh, this history, Lord, but we, we want to do it in a way that applies to, to us and the history that you're making with us as individual believers and as a church. We humble ourselves before you in this sense, Lord. We can't know anything from your word unless you're the one who teaches us. It's a supernatural word requiring a supernatural anointing, and that's something only you can do. And so I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would teach me and teach others here, Lord, as we've gathered. If there's someone here that's not a believer, that you would work on convincing them of uh, the cross of Jesus Christ, that they would be drawn by the cross the way you promised men will, and that they would learn that you are their Savior and give themselves to you, offering themselves up, Lord, uh, on an altar of living sacrifice. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Would you go to a physician whose failure rate was 70%? Probably not. 42 million Americans receive psychotherapy annually. Therapy achieves a success rate of 30%, no matter the method. I remember when I was, uh, before I was a Christian, studying psychology at the University of California, Riverside campus, thank you, I asked one of my psych instructors, uh, which one of these 17 different therapies is the best? She says, they're all just about the same, and they're at about a 30% success rate. Now, this, this number actually comes from research, not just from that anecdote, but uh, at that moment, I realized psychology was bunk, and I wasn't yet a Christian. But anyway, that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to someone. Patients report, and research bears out, talking to friends helps more than therapy. If a friend is your best source of help, go to your best friend. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Our friend is a wonderful counselor. No matter that he ascended into heaven, he promised, Behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. He keeps his promise by giving us the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sent in his name. God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us. He empowers us to obey God's word. He communicates with us, discerning between our soul and our spirit in a place no one else can minister or be as intimate. Nobody knows you the way Jesus does. He formed you in your mother's womb. All the hairs of your head for your entire lifetime are individually numbered. He collect, uh, collects rather your tears in a bottle. He's doing a work in you and has promised that he will complete it with or without your full cooperation. Nothing formed against you can prosper. You can count on everything working together for good. Death and the grave have no power over you. If you resist the devil, he flees from you. 
The Lord knows everything you're going through and feeling. He's touched by your infirmities. He prays for you. The psalmist knew where a believer's help comes from. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. King Ahaz of Judah was about to be invaded by Syria and Israel. He was endangered by Assyria. Where would he look for help? Where am I looking for help? Where are you looking for help? Is a question that we'll want to consider as we work through these verses. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, the Lord is out to help you. Number two, the world is out to harm you. Let's take a look at the Lord's help in verses 1 through 9. We're introduced to the next, the 12th king of Judah, Ahaz. He's a guy that makes you feel like you need a shower after you've been around him. He was serious about idol worship. He sacrificed his son to Molech. Uh, His infant son would be put on the burning hot arms of Molech as a living human sacrifice. He defiled the temple in Jerusalem by removing articles used for worship, replacing them with pagan altars and articles. He never repented. When he died, it says he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. And so we pick up the story in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, 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 the son of Remaliah, I'm trying to get these pronunciations right, king of Israel went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. It takes a lot of mental energy to, to do that, right? Uh, this much. The Assyrian Empire was expanding its territory, exerting pressure on Judah's neighboring kingdoms. In 735 BC, Ahaz learned that Syria and Israel had formed an alliance to become stronger against Assyria, and they planned to depose Ahaz in order to force Judah to join that coalition. Isaiah was sent by God to reassure Ahaz that he did not need to fear the invading armies, God would protect Judah. Ahaz, an apostate idolater, rebuffed the Lord's help. He didn't want it. Syria and Israel, it says, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. Verse 1 is a short summary of the episode. Beginning in verse 2, Isaiah presents a more detailed account. So it's like a newspaper article in the sense that it'll have a, you know, the headline and then a short tagline that tells you about it, and then they go back and explain everything. And so verse 1 is the overview. Beginning in verse 2, it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so Ephraim and Israel are interchangeable in this text. The house of David is more or less the Davidic covenant. It was an unconditional covenant made between God and King David. God promised that he would establish a dynasty of kings from David's descendants and that his kingdom would be established forever. That's going to be fulfilled in the future when Jesus returns in his second coming and he rules and reigns over the earth from David's former throne in Jerusalem. Jesus has made a bunch of unconditional promises to us, and those are the best kind of promises, aren't they? They they don't rest upon your faithfulness. Aren't you so glad that 
God doesn't save you or keep you uh, based on your faithfulness. You and I are unfaithful. And if you think you're faithful, then you're a liar, and that's even worse. And so Jesus makes all these great promises like, I'll never leave you or forsake you, or where I'm going, you're going to be there also. Read through John 14 through 17, now that there's no football on TV uh, this afternoon, and just underline with a marker some of the unconditional promises. And always be on the lookout for unconditional promises about your relationship with the Lord. Ahaz was fearfully focused on troop deployment, He felt caught in a terrible windstorm that would certainly uproot their nation. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. It was sound strategy to protect the water supply of walled cities. Warfare in those days, walled city, Uh, When the enemy was coming, you'd know it. They'd make a lot of noise and kick up a lot of dust, and and you'd have spotters. Everybody would get inside the walls. They would fortify the walls. The invading army would circle the city and and siege it, and it was a matter of who was going to run out of resources first. And, of course, if you ran out of water, that was serious because you could only last four or five, six days at the most uh, before you relented and opened the gates and thought, I'd rather, you know, whatever the Assyrians are going to do to me or whoever than, than die of starvation and dehydration. And so uh, he was checking out the water supply. It must have been a go to work with dad day, go to work with your prophet dad and see what he does. Or maybe Isaiah's wife was just in a bad mood. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> Shir Jashub is a compound word meaning the remnant shall return. Whether this was his name or a nickname, that's how people knew him, and therefore his presence communicated a major theme of his dad's ministry, that God will preserve a remnant in judgment. And so this kid, uh, you know, he had, he had this, this name or nickname that was a ministering wherever he went. They'd say, oh, there's a remnant will be restored or a remnant, a remnant will remain, and it's a, it's a great promise. So we might ask from that, just for fun, what name or nickname would somebody give you based on your message? What is your message that they get from you? Probably me. I'm an easy one. Probably say, well, Gene's always talking about the rapture. Gene is, are you ready for the rapture? You know, ready or not, Jesus is coming, and he has stickers to prove it, you know, stuff. But anyway, so what would your message be? I'm not saying I'm superior to you. It's, it's the one note on my guitar. That's all I have to say. But, you know, what message are people getting from your life? And then secondly, we need to make sure we never overlook our children, but that we encourage them from a young age to be seeking in uh, the Lord to serve him, Right? Uh, You know, whatever dreams and plans you have for your kids, and all parents do, uh, you know, factor in the Lord as the number one plan. They need to be saved, and then what's God's plan for their life? Uh, It may not be your plan, uh, but it's the best plan. And so we want to uh, obviously include our children in everything that we do uh, in terms of serving and seeking the Lord. Verse 4, say to him, take heed and be quiet. Don't fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason and Syria and the son of Ramaliah. The Syria-Israel alliance looked like an approaching fire that would consume Judah. Ultimately, it was nothing but smoke. It was just a little you know, sparkler that was going to go out. 
Verse 5, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king uh, over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Uh, here's another weird name. King of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III. He conquered Damascus. Their population was deported and reason executed. And then he conquered Israel and deported the ten tribes out of Assyria, uh, Israel to Assyria. And so verse 9 says, If you will not believe, you shall not be established. The one thing Ahaz was asked to do was believe. Established is a, uh, translated a bunch of different ways in different versions of the Bible. The sense of it is that Ahaz and Judah would live in constant fear instead of standing on the firm foundation of faith. There's really only you know, two positions. You're either fearful or faithful, and, or have a lot of faith, I should say. Uh, and if, you're, if you don't have faith in the Lord and, and you can't stand while things are swirling around you, then you're fearful. And fearful is, is you know, it's, it's not a way to live. Uh, you know, you're always worrying and wondering. Uh, and that's why I gave that kind of litany of things that Jesus is to you as, as your friend and as my friend. Uh, when you read those, you think there's nothing to fear, right? Because I've, and that's just a sampling of all the things we could say about the Lord. We're prone to fear. We're given to fear. Uh, men play on our fears, but uh, we don't need to fear. Ahaz, rather, would reject God's help. Instead, he would make an alliance with Assyria, and Assyria's help seemed more tangible to them than God's help. Uh, this happens a lot in our, you know, in our midst uh, as Christians. People need help, maybe people you work with or your family or somebody, somebody needs help. And after you hear them out, you say, well, you need to come to church and receive Christ and you know you need to do and they're like I just told you I can't pay my rent I lost my job my car exploded and my dog died I'm not a country western singer so I can't make a song out of it I'm going down the tubes and you're talking to me about Jesus and getting saved I don't understand how that it doesn't seem tangible you need to pray and go to church and have fellowship and do these things. How is that a tangible help to me? And yet those of us who were saved later in life, it, is the, it was the only help that was available to us in, in the long run. When we came to Christ, our marriages were saved. Our finances got themselves in order somehow. Not, not everyone had the same testimony, but all of a sudden that which seemed intangible was the most important thing that could have ever happened. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of what's happening here with uh, Ahaz. Can you imagine Ahaz coming? I mean, he was a king, so he didn't care. But if he had a board to, uh, you know, uh, to be uh, liable to, he could say, well, what's the plan? We're going to uh, pray and wait on the Lord. You know, Israel and Syria are coming right now with more than prayers. They're coming with spears and swords. No problem. Let's have a, a Bible study. It would, no, they wanted him to come out and say, hey, I negotiated a truce with Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, and when these guys come down, they've got a real surprise waiting for them. The Assyrians are going to kill them. And so that's, we're faced with that all the time. 
If an unbeliever is in a crisis needing help, the solution is Jesus. And the only real counsel you can give an unbeliever is to evangelize them. You can't give, for example, you can't give marriage counseling to a non-believer. You can't tell a guy to love his wife the way Christ loves the church. That's like, that doesn't even translate. He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't know the church. He doesn't know how Christ loves the church. There's no, and he doesn't have the power to do any of that even if he wanted to. And so all we can do with non-believers is evangelize them. And that's a great thing. They need to come to Jesus. And then disciple, uh, believers, we disciple. We call it counseling sometimes, but churches don't really do counseling. We should do discipleship where we, we get into the word and we say, hey, what does God say about this? Because remember, he's in you. You're full of him. And you can do the things that he says to do. Maybe we just don't need to understand what they are. I've always liked what Larry Norman said, godfather of Christian music. Don't ask me for the answers. I've only got one. A man leaves the darkness when he follows the sun. And so that's the idea. What's your answer? Jesus. And you know that it's a good answer. It's a true answer. It's the right answer. One of the worst things about receiving and following ungodly counsel is that it sometimes works. It seems to work. And so, you know, people come in, they say, well, um, you know, I'm going to do this. Well, the Bible says this. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. And then down the road, they seem to be blessed and doing well. It's easy to mistake God's grace for his favor. And so they look and they say, well, you know, God was obviously okay with that. No, it's still wrong, but God is gracious, and he decided not to kill you. God killed Ananias and Sapphira in the early church in the book of Acts. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And uh, God said, hey, we can't have that right now. This thing is just getting off the ground. We need to talk about holiness. You're dead. Uh, and one after the other, they were dead. You know, prematurely, obviously, but uh, believers, but still dead. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, I have no idea what I'm talking about now. But, uh, oh, favor. So, uh, great. So God sometimes extends grace. He doesn't kill you. He doesn't uh, harm you. In fact, he, you, know, you prosper later on, and then you and I think, how come you know, I told him the truth, didn't I? Didn't I give you what, what? It's grace, and grace is something that's going to be, it's so hard, I, I don't even want to say to understand, but it's so hard to live with. You know, God is so gracious. Um, you know, like right now, I don't, I don't know what's happening in Asbury with the revival, right? I don't know what's going on. Well, this seems like a genuine time of God moving in people's lives. And the real thing that's going on is so many Christians are against it. I read a guy the other day, he's against it because his, he said revival can only come if a pastor is teaching expositorily through the Bible and in his church. And that's where revival is. Uh, what, what, you know, that's, not, that's never been revival, I don't think. But anyway, you know, what's wrong with people? Uh, in terms of, of doing that and just not really getting on board. Um, you know, if God wants to do a work of grace, he doesn't need you to be qualified. He, you know, you can't say, well, revival can only come through an ordained minister who went to 12 years of seminary. I mean, uh, look at all the goofy people God uses in the Bible. I mean, people you would never choose. Never. Lot and... Uh, you know, Lot's my favorite because you don't even know he's saved until we're told in, later on in the New Testament. And so grace, uh, God, God says, hey, I'm going to be gracious to Ahaz. Ahaz has got to be the last guy you'd want to be gracious to. Uh, what he's going to do in a minute is even worse. 
And so God offered Ahaz help, but he made a deal with the devil. Verses 10 through 25, the world is out to harm you. Our BFF said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Any methodology, ideology, philosophy, psychology, theology, any other ology or osophy that is not biblical with Christian ethics is in alliance with folks who hate Jesus and will do you harm eventually. Now, by harm, I don't necessarily mean they will physically hurt you. Uh, that is an eventuality when, when the church is persecuted. Leading up to it, you're harmed because they undermine the character of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If he is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, why do we need to seek ungodly principles or practices from the world? Right? I mean, you're a Christian, and you're saying, yeah, and this is my best friend, Jesus. Look at all he's done for me. But I don't think it's sufficient. I need some help from out here. I need, you know, what these secular guys have found some cool stuff that might, you know, help me a, a lot. Jeremy Taylor wrote, it is impossible for that man to despair who remembers that his helper is omnipotent. And so uh, we need to have many times a higher opinion of God, uh, you know, and it, it alone will get us out of our uh, situations and uh, will be our help. So verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the heights of heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Ahaz wasn't seeking a sign. He was offered one. And not only that, he could choose the sign. He could let his imagination run wild. Ahaz, you wicked king, one of the worst kings of Judah, you've just refused my help. Pick a sign. I want to do something for you. In the heaven, you want the sun to stand still? That's old hat. That hat. Joshua did that. Let's move on to something else. Mars, you want to see Mars up close? Anything you ask for. And Ahaz says, yeah, that's, I'm not going to test the Lord. This is grace. Now, his refusal is universally understood by commentators as false humility, as pride, hypocrisy, posturing, those kinds of things. And then even more remarkable, God gave Ahaz a sign anyway. This is the kind of guy you want to kill in a windstorm, and, and he, God keeps giving him chances. God's interactions with Ahaz are like a grace bomb going off in his life. You'd think he was talking to a good king. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, verse 13, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? It's one thing to say no to Isaiah, it was quite another thing to say no to God. It's as if I, Isaiah couldn't take it in a sense. He goes, you know, what are you doing saying no to God? This doesn't make any sense. You're, you're in need of help. You know, God graciously has given signs to the human race. Creation is a sign revealing the existence and declaring the glory of God. Fulfilled Bible prophecy is an irrefutable sign. God's prophecies are always 100% fulfilled to the letter. And there are other uh, witnesses to, to human beings, but uh, there are a lot of signs. Uh, no one is without excuse if they turn away the Lord. Is God wearied by people refusing him? Well, we talk about his long-suffering with us, desiring that we be saved. He waits and waits and waits while uh, men do terrible things to him and to each other. One day that long-suffering will end, and you read about that end in the book of the Revelation. 
People say, why doesn't God do something? Read chapter 6 through 19 of that book and you, you won't be so anxious for him to do something, especially if you're not a believer. I mean, the, the judgments in there are awful and horrible and terrible. Anybody tells you we're in the tribulation now? Read almost any chapter there. Nothing like what's going to happen in the future has ever happened. And Jesus said that. He goes, it will be a time of trouble on the earth like never, ever, ever before or ever again. It, it'll, it'll be crazy, incredible. Unbelievers say no to God and everything he has revealed because they prefer their sin. This attitude is celebrated. Think of all the literature and films that hinge on the indomitable, unconquerable human spirit, right? It's like, and you, you, you like that, you're like, yeah, that's us. We love our freedom, we're strong, we'd rather die than anything else, you know? And then the aliens or whoever it is, they say, we give up, we can't deal with these humans. It's like the Captain Kirk, right? You just, you cannot defeat Captain Kirk. I mean, no matter what, he just keeps coming at you and, and he just won't give up. Superior strength, superior whatever, you know, he's, he always wins because he's a human. Or as the Ferengi would say, a human. But uh, anyway, you Star Trek fans, I, I did that just for you. Charles Spurgeon said of this next passage, it is said to be one of the most difficult in all the word of God. It is Isaiah's famous Christmas prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus. What's so hard about it? Well, two of the difficulties are these. Number one, the far-off virgin birth is somehow a sign to Ahaz. Something that's not going to happen for 600 years is a sign. Isaiah definitely refers to a child born and living during the time of Ahaz in addition to this future child. And so let's look at it. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. And so uh, we know that this verse is about Jesus because Matthew cites it in his gospel when he describes Jesus' birth. He says, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The virgin birth of Jesus is more accurately called the virgin conception of Jesus, a virgin conceived in her womb and then gave birth. It teaches that Jesus was born apart from the normal process of procreation, but was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, born of her without sin. Uh, the virgin birth made it possible for Jesus to be born without a sin nature. Who is the other kid Isaiah describes? Because there's a kid here who's going to be just about weaned and uh, the age of discernment when these other nations are destroyed. Well, uh, he's a timestamp as to when Syria and Israel would be defeated. Any answer to this starts with the use of the Hebrew word Alma. This is a word that could be used of virgins, and it could be used of married young women who were not virgins anymore. That's because young, unmarried Jewish women were assumed to be virgins. And so you could call, so it's kind of like a, a blanket title, young lady, 
And if you happen to be a virgin, it, it applied to you. And if you happen not to be and you were a young lady, it applied to you. And you think, well, that's kind of, you know, weird. I mean, you know, uh, really? Well, yeah, because there were, you know, in that culture, I, have you figured out yet that we live in a promiscuous culture? Where, where sex is like out there, you know, and everybody's doing it and, you know, adultery and all promis promiscuity and all this stuff. If you were in this time, you know, is this, you know, you'd look at a young girl who wasn't married and you're a virgin. You wouldn't wonder like we do today, you know, you're a virgin. And then when you get married, you're not a virgin anymore, but you're still a young woman. And so it covers both. Uh, there were no miraculous virgin births in Isaiah's time. He's not talking about another uh, baby born of a virgin that uh, Ahaz would see. He's describing a young woman, probably in the royal household, who married and conceived a son in the normal manner and unknowingly named him Emmanuel. Before he would reach the age of discernment, Syria and Israel would be overthrown. Emmanuel was not a common name in Isaiah's time. Uh, it is more so now. We, we can name a lot of people named Emmanuel. Even some girls are named Emmanuel, but it's, it, and it's on the list of popular names you know, to look up. It's not really a name. It never was a name. It's a title. It means God with us. And so if you were in, uh, you know, 7th century Israel, or Judah rather, and somehow you decided to name your son Emmanuel, that would be weird and different. Uh, it's not necessarily miraculous, but it, but it would be a sign. And so that's what I think is going. There's, so there's two tracks here. Because the virgin birth of Jesus, you know, that does nothing for Ahaz in terms of giving him a sign. And it doesn't explain who this other kid was. And so, so somebody was born, named Emmanuel, uh, and it came to Ahaz's attention as a sign that God would have done all the things he said he was going to do. And then Matthew's able to borrow that in the New Testament and say, hey, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin. Having said all that, how do we know Mary was really a virgin and not just a young woman who had committed sexual sin? Well, Matthew goes on to say, that while Joseph, the husband of Mary, thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then in Luke's gospel, Mary stated she had not been with a man. And the angel explained, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that Holy One is to be born will be called the Son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. God's plan from the beginning to be with us, to enjoy our fellowship and we his, uh, to be best friends forever. Back now to the remaining verses, Isaiah spells out the harm which will ensue if Ahaz doesn't quit looking beyond the Lord for help. Verse 17, the Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day Ephraim departed from Judah. And so here he's talking about the split between the nation. A costly civil war between Israel and Judah had lasted for several decades. Verse 18, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys in the clefts of the rocks and on thorns and in all pastures. 
Uh, this, I was talking to Pam, I said this is the second time the Bi- Isaiah said the Lord whistled. Uh, I just find that curious, right? Think about God with a, one of those big whistles that some of you can do. All right, flies, bees, you're on, and uh, devastating the land. Verse 20, in the same day the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river and the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and also will remove the beard. The mafia identified hitmen by saying they were house painters. You paint houses? Yeah. Okay, I've got a, I've got a guy. Uh, I, Assyria here is called God's razor. Uh, and, of course, you know, the idea here was they were going to come and, and defeat uh, Judah. They were going to overthrow them. And one of the things they would do is shave their heads, shave their beards, apparently shave their legs as well, take all their hair off, because it was an insult and... Um, you know, it was something that the Jews despised. Uh, it was a humiliation for them to, to have. It meant that they were defeated. Uh, now you think, well, that's not so bad. You know, well, that was just the beginning. My favorite Assyrian uh, captive, uh, you know, uh, thing is that they would take these huge fish hooks and they would put them through your jaw and out your mouth and then tie people together chain, and they'd drag them along. And then, uh, you say, well, you know, fish, when we do that, doesn't hurt them, right? Well, yeah, it does, and it hurts you too. <laughs> so you, you ever lie to your children and say stuff like that? Oh, what are you doing to that fish? Fish don't feel any pain. Is that true? By the way, anybody, you can talk to me afterwards. But So the Assyrians, these are bad dudes. These are the, they, they were the worst of the worst. They were way worse than Babylon would be. Uh, and, and any of their, uh, you know, the ones that followed, I mean, they were cruel, brutal people. Uh, and, and so, you know, this is the promise that they were going to come and destroy the southern kingdom if uh, Ahaz didn't get on board. It'll be a, a day, verse 21, that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, so it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. Curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever there would be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows, men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with a hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for sheep to roam. Uh, The abundance of milk and honey, that sounds good, but it's not really. Because what it's saying is that the, these animals would have no young to nurse them, or to, to nurse, and so therefore there'd be an abundance of these products and nothing else because all the grazing or all the, all the farmland was destroyed. Uh, and, you know, so the people were impoverished. Farmers would have no crops, vineyards would be ruined along with the cultivated land, only briars and thorns would grow. The devil is the ruler of this world. He is its God, we're told in the New Testament. The world is a corrupt system designed to keep unbelievers lost for eternity and to persecute believers. There is no alliance with the world that can be made that does not eventually cause you harm. One of the most sinister and satanic alliances is religion. If it is not biblical Christianity, It is a man-made religion. They all promise salvation that can be earned by good works. It cannot. They are all the broad way, uh, the broad highway, rather, to hell. And and so, um, you know, we're talking about alliances. What kind of things are you talking about, Gene? Well, when people get deep into a non-Christian or a a religion, 
uh, or something that's not biblical Christianity. They've made an alliance that's going to lead them to hell. It's, it's Satan coming up with religion. He must have a whole division of, of uh, you know, re, uh, religion creation. Hey, if you guys haven't heard anything lately, we have one coming now. It's, it's called, we're going to call it Scientology. Oh, that's intriguing. Uh, and so, you know, religion. You say, well, wait a minute, Gene. Uh, Christianity, I mean, there, there were religions before Jesus. Yeah, sure, of course there were, but, but they were religions. The original thing came out of the Garden of Eden, right? Right in the Garden of Eden, God said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come as, as your savior because you can't save yourself. And, of course, men started, you know, with their satanic uh, religions and all that. And so it's an alliance that people make that's going to lead them to hell. A.W. Tozer wrote, an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. The Bible way of saying this is in Ephesians 5.19 where Paul the Apostle says, you are filled with all the fullness of God. You have God dwelling in you that you may obey and thereby enjoy him. I mean, he couldn't have said it any more strongly. You are full, filled with the fullness, right? I mean, you've got all of God that you can get and all that you need. And so check your walk with the Lord for alliances with the world. Rely only upon him. Unbeliever, what or who are you relying upon to get into heaven? This virgin birth, uh, very important because it allows God to become a man without a sin nature in order to satisfy the holiness of God by giving himself a sacrifice for your sin. And so it's very simple. Jesus said, I am without sin, but I'm going to go to the cross and die because the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die when there's been sin. So I'll die, and because I'm perfect without a sin nature, I can give you my righteousness. We'll make an exchange. I'll give you my righteousness, I'll take your sin, and you'll be clean and right before God. What do you need to do? You just need to believe that. No, wait a minute, I, you know, isn't there a baptism or a sprinkling with holy water or a confession? Isn't there a blowing myself up with a bomb? Uh, you know, what, what is there that I have to do? Don't I have to come back as an insect three or four times? You know, and say, so, no, you believe that God has done that for you. Because there's no work that you can do that would, be, that would qualify you to get into heaven. And so God says, I've had it planned since the beginning. I said I would come for you. I said I would take your place. Believe that. And Ahaz, perfect unbeliever. Yeah, I don't care about that. I've got real problems here with Assyria. I need tangible help. Uh, over here, I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, I, I sacrifice of children idolater. But, you know, I, I, you know, I don't need God. You want to give me a sign? Sure. God's given a sign. You know, God doesn't need to give any more signs. Everybody is accountable right now all over the globe. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, Jesus is offering, and, and you just believe. And to refuse to believe, it's idiotic when you think about it. Uh, because, it, it, you know, you don't do anything. You just, you just believe God. And so if you're not a believer here today, believe God. He's proven it to you time and time again. And you're here for that reason. You're here for a reason. Uh, you're not here to get some advice or counsel. You're here to be evangelized. You're here to hear that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, he rose from the dead, and that he's coming again. Any moment he could be back. I'm not trying to scare you. We're, we're just telling you the truth.